You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the honor and pleasure of chatting with Marsha Liga. For over 28 years, Marsha strives to create contemporary art in the form of metal wall sculptures that appear to float across the wall, denying their unusual heaviness and attachment to supporting forms. Her art has been featured in Architectural Digest and even in A-Rod's Bedroom. Changing and controlling industrial material in such a way as to bring out its beauty and humanity really excites Marsha. This fight to deny our unusual relationship with sheets of stainless steel, brass, and copper expresses Marsha's personal fight to affect her surroundings. It echoes the struggle all humans have to mold, change, and influence the unyielding, unnatural world around them. So sit back, grab yourself your favorite cocktail, and enjoy this very special show. Marcia, welcome to Served Up. It is an honor and pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You are welcome. Could you tell our listeners about your journey into the metal arts world, specifically early on, what inspired you and your art? What did that journey look like? I think that right from the very earliest age, I wanted to be an artist. And I always knew I wanted to be an artist. I didn't know how to be an artist, but I remember wanting to be an artist. And um, so I took art in high school and then I majored in art in college. And then it was time for, uh, I thought, well, I might as well get a master's degree. I get a master's degree at art. Uh, Stephanie, my daughter, was uh, still nursing at the time. So it was always a challenge to try to get a master's degree when you have a nursing baby. But um, during that time, I went to Governor's State University and I measured in metals. I just picked metals because I liked it. I don't know that I I had a, a strong reason for picking metals, but I knew I was good at it. And I I knew that it was fun for me to do. So I majored in metals and sculptural metals. And uh, when I got done with my master's degree, I was still teaching. I was teaching at the high school level in Joliet. And uh, I thought, well, that'll be my career. You know, I'm a wife. I have two children and I'm going to be, you know, I'll make stuff just because I think it's fun to make, but not because I had a career in doing it. And as time went on, Unbeknownst to me, they decided to close Joliet East High School. Now, that meant that they compressed two high schools into one high school, I mean, three high schools into two high schools, and now they only needed four art teachers instead of five art teachers. And I was the lowest in seniority, so I was bumped out. And this is way before your time, but during the early 80s, Joliet had 
Joliet, Illinois had the highest unemployment in the nation. Absolutely no employment. I mean, there was no employment. I applied for everything. <laughs> it was un unemployment. I even applied for mud wrestling because you had to have two applications <laughs> as a mud wrestler. Hold on. Time out. Time out. As a mud wrestler? Well, yes. Yes. I thought, you know, I had to have two applications a week, but I couldn't get an application. And so I thought they had in the Herald News uh, international mud wrestling. And I thought, well, what the hell? I mean, I'm not going to be able to get this job, but I would I would. So anyway, I did. And then I applied to be I thought it was a driving instructor, but in fact, not quite. So I called and I and they called me back. They were very happy to hear from me and everything. And then they said, how long have you been swimming? And I said, well, I've swam since I was a child. I have an odd question, you know, and how do you feel about diving? And I said, well, you know, I've always been terrified of diving. I don't, I don't mind jumping in the water, but I don't like diving in the water. And he says, well, why would you apply to be a diving instructor? Another failure in my application path. Goodness, so you were trying. Case, I was trying. I was trying. Uh, once that ran out, I was, I decided I should do something to make a living. And so I thought, well, I like all the all sorts of art stuff. So I would try three different things. So I made a business card that said, uh, Marsha uh, Liga artist working in fiber, stained glass and metal. I thought, well, one of these might click. So I started making these fiber um, collages of people's homes. And I thought I could sell people a picture of their home made in fiber collage, which was good, except it took forever. You could never make a living doing this. And then um, then I thought I'd take up stained glass. So I, I did that. And I did sell some stained glass windows that were specific to people's houses and what have you, because my idea was to be specific to the client. Un unbelievably slow. I was slow as a mouse. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't earn 20 cents an hour. And then I said, I started making this jewelry and I thought, holy crap, I am really good at this. I'm good. I'm fast. I'm efficient. And I could, but I, I, I thought, okay, this is it. Metals. So I started making earrings and stuff and uh, I was kind of down on myself and my sister came by and I, I looked terrible. I was dressed in the worst clothes you could find in your closet. And she says, come on, we're going to go and start selling your jewelry somewhere. I said, what do you mean? I said, I, I look like hell. I can't go anywhere. What can I do? Anyway, she, she said, come on, get dressed. Let's go. So I grabbed my stuff and we went. She says, we can't go to places where people can't afford to buy jewelry. Let's go to Hinsdale. So not that I ever went to Hinsdale before, but we walked, we went to Hinsdale and we went to various little shops and I went to a, a, a gallery called Nat, um, what's it called? And I, I her name was Thackerberry. She had a, a gallery upstairs and all sorts of interesting things. And then I showed her my stuff and she, oh, she loved everything. She loved everything. She said, but I've got the perfect person for you. So she starts rummaging around at her feet, which I thought was odd. But apparently that's where she keeps her newspapers. And she pulled out an article of a, a lady named Suzanne Craig in the city of Chicago who represented jewelry artists as as a rep. And she says, call Suzanne. She's just the woman for you. And I uh, 
I thought, okay, <laughs> and she bought three pairs of earrings. I couldn't go, you know, I mean, that was wonderful. So anyway, off I went and then Kathleen had to do something at the art Institute and she had an appointment down there for, for some reason. And so I went to the, I was in the waiting room there and, um, it was really before, well, obviously it was before cell phones because we're talking uh, in the early 80s. Uh, so anyway, I thought, well, maybe I'd go to the telephone and I call this Suzanne Craig because I'm in Chicago. Maybe she's close by. So uh, I called her up and she answered the phone and I said, uh, "What Virginia Thackerberry, I think that was her name, had recommended her and thought that I would be a good fit for her. And she said, well, come on over. Where are you? And I said, well, I'm at the Art Institute. She said, well, I'm at the Apparel Mart. Just take a cab to the Apparel Mart. You can be here in no time. And I'll look at your stuff. So uh, my sister had come back in and I said, Kathleen, I'm I'm going to go see Suzanne Craig. She said, that's fine because I've got appointments for another couple hours. So off I went. But the thing was, I didn't know what the Apparel Mart was. I didn't know where the Apparel Mart existed at i it could have been in you know evanston i had no idea so i took a cab and they dropped me off at the apparel mart which is right near was at that time right near the uh merchandise mart i got out of the car uh, the thing went upstairs suzanne Craig just loved it she loved everything i did she wanted to rep me i didn't know what a rep was i had no idea i had no idea how you sold jewelry and she said I'll need three sets of samples because I've got a Minnesota showroom, a a Houston showroom and a Chicago showroom. So I need three sets of your samples. And I was making sterling silver sculptures. I mean, so they're sterling silver pendants and earrings at the time. And uh, so then I, I, uh, I said, Oh, okay. And she said, and I said, and then what do I do? She said, well, then you bring them here. And then I start selling them. And then I place orders. And once I place orders, then you can, uh, then you can, you know, we're in business. And I said, right now we're in business. Oh, absolutely. So I thought, holy shit. Now I had never, never made two pairs of earrings at a time. I mean, I never reproduced something. So I made an earring that set of earrings and I make another set of earrings and I make another set of earrings. But now I had to make a pattern off these earrings and try to make multiples. And anyway, Suzanne Craig became my rep and I started traveling with her to the New York shows. The New York shows had uh, a fall market, a winter market, a spring market and a holiday market. I had never heard any of this stuff ever. But anyway, I would go go to New York and I, it opened all sorts of doors that I didn't know existed. I didn't know how this was done. I didn't know how reps were. I didn't know how to bill, but it didn't matter. I, I did it in any case. And uh, one of the flights that I did take to, um, to New York, I, I was seated, seated next to a man and I, I was reading a novel and, and I was laughing. It was funny. It was a funny novel. And he said, oh, boy, you look like you're cheerful. And I said, well, I've just coming back from the, the mart and I had a good show. I mean, from the uh, apparel um, show and I had a good show. So I'm reading a funny book. Oh, what did you what do you make? And I told him and I said, well, do you have any sense? Show me, show me. And I so I opened it up and I 
showed him some of my samples. He said, I love them. Can I show my wife? I said, sure, sure. She's three rows up. So passing them over the overhead to the other people that she passed and back. She loves it, loves it, loves it. So he said, well, I want to tell you, I want to do something about this. Let's care. I want to carry your jewelry. And I said, oh, great. And he said, okay. I said, well, where should I, should I meet you at in Chicago? And he said, well, I'm the CEO of Carson, Pure Scott. Oh my gosh. Hey, (laughs) Marsha. I know. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. So I I know. So I said, wow, well, that's, that's, that's really good. He said, there's certain stores will fit this, this arty stuff will fit in. Not every Carson's will have fit in, but it'll fit in certain stores. uh, Anyway. Okay. I'm going to have my people call you. And I said, okay. Me. So anyway, then from there, I got um, that the Tribune used to run a magazine section every Sunday in, in the Tribune. And I was featured big, big feature of my jewelry with models wearing it. I didn't know if they even had they paid for all that because they they put it all in the jewel, the new jewelers and, and whatever. And uh, so it was an ex, kind of an exciting time. And I was also at that time. Um, teaching at the Joliet Junior College part-time. I was an adjunct professor. I couldn't get a real serious job, but anyway, things were happening. Things were popping. And uh, somewhere in the mid eighties, I was in a car accident. And the way you make sterling silver jewelry is you stand at a buffer and you're buffing this stuff. You cut the metal out and I whatever, fold it, and then I buff it. So I'm buffing the stuff. Well, I couldn't do it because my injury on my shoulder. And then I, you know, I hired a variety of people to try to help me buff it. It was very, very uncomfortable and um, difficult for me to really work. And it wasn't the same as my, my touch to it, to the jewelry. So in any case, I started thinking, well, if I could make if I could take my folded jewelry and make them big, they would be sculptures. Who to say that they couldn't be sculptures because I'm making this shit up. I don't know what I'm doing. And so anyway, I, I so I thought, OK, this sounds good. So I took my jewelry and I went, I went, I thought, well, what kind of metal should I work in? I knew nothing about metal. And I kind of looked at various metals and aluminum was too white and and nickel was you know, it wasn't commonly available. And so I thought stainless steel. I had no, no knowledge of stainless steel, nothing. So and then I went from sheet metal shop to sheet metal shop and I called and nobody would answer the phone. And and they said, hey, no, no, lady, we're not making earrings into wall sculptures. <laughs> we make duck work, you know, or we make this or we make that. Finally, I found a fellow that said, hey, um, I think I was Mike Fazio and who, which company he works for is almost out of my mind right now. I can't quite put place it, but in any case, he's come on over, be happy to talk to you. So, oh, he thought this was a wonderful idea. Why not? So I thought, okay, why not? So all of a sudden I was out and he said, you have to come after hours and we'll see if we get one of the, you know, I get somebody that's interested in doing this for me. And uh, so anyway, I started making, I, I got started making sculptures and I had previous to that um, making the sculpture while I was still discussing it in my mind. I had a, um, a 
artists. I mean, I had a gallery on uh, downtown Chicago that was carrying my jewelry. And I was telling her that I was thinking about doing the sculptures. You know, if I could make big, big sculptures, uh, I would make them, you know, my earrings and just, oh, if I did that, she'd do a show for me. She'd do a one or two person show. And yes, that was a big, big friggin' deal, you know, and uh, it was in that arty area of of Chicago anyway. So I, I did it and I made, I don't know, six sculptures. So she did a show for me. Then from the show that somebody from the merchandise mart came and they loved everything. Could I make some trades? Trades? I thought, holy crap, you know, (laughs) trays you mean like to put on your table she, oh yes absolutely put trays. yeah she wanted trays so I started making trays and but now there was a shift of how do I market this because Suzanne Craig was a jewelry person and she couldn't couldn't market this and I mean I don't you can tell me if I'm telling you too big a story that goes on and on I'm just telling you that nothing was planned I had no designs on being anything other than a mother and an art teacher and life just kept on going. So in any case, I started doing trade shows where I went to the American craft council shows. There's the highest end show that they have in America and the Wendy Rosen show. So I started traveling to Baltimore and Philadelphia, San Francisco, Minneapolis, doing these shows and bringing my sculptures and bringing these trays. And uh, I, I said, wouldn't it be pretty if the tray had a mirror on it, then your pretty bottles would look nice. So I brought those to San Francisco, which I only found out that afterwards that these were being purchased by places for cocaine use. I had no idea. Oh, yes. I mean, they wanted. Oh, something. my God. Was yes. it and somebody said, I said, I'm doing so well with my sales of these trays because these shows would be part half wholesale and half retail. I thought, well, why are they not buying my sculpture? But God damn it, these trays are going like hotcakes, you know? <laughs> Some guy said to me, well, don't you know what they're going to use them for? And I thought, well, I thought they were to set your perfume bottles on. No, no, lady. Okay, okay. So then I decided I would start, I didn't want to encourage drug use. So I started hanging the trays on the wall and they became mirrors. Mm. So all of a sudden I was making sculptures and mirrors and and then from that somebody asked me actually a woman here in Angeliet Morica Bancar asked me I would love one of your sculptures but could you make a sculpture table a table that was made like a sculpture and uh, I said well I haven't done that I guess I can so she was the first person to order a table and then that just kept evolving and I you know then I started making more tables and more sculptures then you know i mean there was no rhyme or reason uh about that time maybe it was about 1990 um i moved out of my basement studio into a a studio in crest hill that i had and i had that studio for about oh, eight or nine years but it and then i started buying them i, I stopped doing um, the jewelry altogether, which I pretty much had stopped already. And uh, then I stopped te- and I was teaching then at Harper College and I stopped, I stopped doing the teaching so I could devote my, cause I was torn between two, two things. And so then I just kept making the artwork, you know, and I'm, and I'm traveling for these various 
shows. And during these various shows, I met a lot of art consultants. So most of my sales went through art consultants. And uh, so in any case, um, somewhere around the year 2000, uh, Friends of Community Public Art, which was also in the same building I was in Crest Hill, uh, decided it was time for them to move. And they they found a studio, a building downtown Joliet, which was the old Steelworkers Hall. And Kathleen, who was my sister, who founded that organization, she wanted she said, come on, you got to do this. You got to come down. And the city of Joliet at that time had a program that if you opened a retail store, they would. They would give you ten thousand dollars. For your startup. And so I thought, okay, but so I had a nice big studio and I had one room that was a a gallery, but I didn't I didn't have enough to put in there. Now, this story kind of twists and turns because it's all happen chance. There is no there is no thought that says, "Okay, I want to be a sculptor. I want to be a furniture artist. I want to be this. I want to be that. Nothing like that ever happened. Never happened. Oh, it just kind of flowed along our path. So anyway, it was the beginning of the use of digital cameras. So I thought, okay, I will go start photographing Joliet and I'll photograph all around the city. And so I started photographing and matting those up and putting it because I didn't have enough stuff to put in a gallery because on the whole, everything I made, I sold. So I only made it if somebody bought it. Somebody like yourself could have said, Marsha, I need a I need a sculpture over my fireplace. A bit that was a big place to put these things. And um so they they would, you know, I didn't have stock, so to speak. I just had the samples I would bring on a trade show. So anyway, I started doing the photography. So that's the next path of my my work was the photography. I don't know if this is too much talk or I can't keep it coming. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's Don't just stop. kind of like one thing after another that happened. So anyway, then I started making all these photographs and from the photographs, um, I started selling the photographs. People like the pictures of Joliet. And, and then I started selling more of them. And I was on the cover of, you know, the Joliet, whatever magazine and all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, people started, uh, coming through my studio and I with interest and anyway so the um one fellow uh came in and uh he said I have the perfect place and I you know the bagel man oh my god an Essington Grogowski anyway he said I have the perfect place for your pictures they'd be fine and we're doing the spill urology building you should do something for the urology building so uh, I thought, okay, uh, that sounded good. So the urology um, manager came over and they liked what I did and they liked the idea I was doing pictures of Joliet and I was selling this as when the people come into the, your facility, wouldn't it be nice to see things that they recognize? Pictures from uh, West Park, pictures from Pilcher Park, pictures from downtown Joliet and surrounding towns. I, I actually expanded a little on Joliet and uh, and as well as just the, the flora of our city, you know, the flowers and all that stuff. So they loved it. They bought all sorts of pictures. I mean, I was, <laughs> the funny part was, so um, I asked them what type of signage would they like, you know, to, 
and well, they have to have ADA signage on their on their things. So I had to print it out like little cards and it said uh, where it was, you know, Pilcher Park and then artist Marsha Liga or, or photographer Marsha Liga. But they were big because, you know, ADA needs somebody to be able to read it, you know, not somebody that needs to put on the reading glasses to read it. So anyway, so I'm my name is plastered from hither to yon throughout throughout the urology office, which was huge. It's a huge office. I mean, I don't know how many I sold to them. I don't know, 50, 50 frame pictures or something, 40. Uh, so after that, um, I, how did this happen? Oh, I think, I don't exactly remember how I got the connection. Somebody must have told this, like, this couple, these women um, from Colorado that I had, a lot of artwork in my gallery. Maybe they might want to stop down or something. Anyway, they stopped down and I told them about, oh no, they had gone to the urology building because that was a brand new building and they were doing the artwork for Silver Cross. And so I, they were going to do the artwork for Silver Cross and they couldn't help but notice who I was since my name was plastered on every single picture. I probably still plastered all the way across because every once in a while I'll get somebody who'll say, hello. I saw your artwork at the urology. I thought, oh, okay. What's the problem? Oh, somebody's got a problem in the family. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they, they so the, they came to visit me. That's how they came. A Tom Gogowski, that was the first guy. So he was in, it, he was kind of like a, a catalyst to start a little trail of photo selling. So they came and I made a presentation and I did the same presentation. I said. The people that come into Silver Cross, every time you go to the doctor, you can have a generic picture of blue blobs or blue flowers or whatever. And that's lovely and it might be nice and calming, but it's actually more calming to see something you recognize as see something that was part of your life or part of your, you know. So when you come in and you're walking through the hallways, you could look and say, oh, yeah, that, you know, I, I used to do that or I went to that ballpark or I did this. So I, I had this little shtick that I was playing with and they bought it and they loved it. So on the part, not in the hospital, because that went through a different um, hospital. For, there, there, there is a whole world of the places hospital art, but this was all of the medical buildings, the parts that you go to the doctor. So I got that. That was a big gig. So I put pictures all through that, through that and, I happened to go to the doctor, one of a doctor, oh, I don't know, in the last year that was in that building. And I thought, oh, look at that. Those are my, oh, those are my grandchildren. They're, they're only like two or three years old, holding hands, walking in the park. And I'm thinking, now they're 21 and 18, you know, life has marched on. So um, in any case, um, so the photography became, not that it took away completely from the steel, but it became a more a bigger part of my my thing. And then I started doing banks and I put photography in. I knew, you know, I'm telling you right now, the photographers are lucky if they still sell hardly it's anything. Nice to be right. it, it, they, 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 they don't they don't sell a lot. And I knew nothing about photography. Nothing. When I say Nothing. I knew nothing. I just had a little digital camera, you know, five megapixel. And I'm taking these freaking pictures all over the place. Naturally, as I went along, I was taking getting better cameras as they came out. But 
I had a good eye and I was able to manipulate the pictures the way I wanted. I could crop them the way I wanted. I had an idea of the context of what the, what I wanted to do with the story I wanted to tell. And I was, you know, I was good at, at selling my concept, which was part of the game was, you know, to be able to verbalize and a lot of times very wonderful photographers maybe couldn't do that. You know, they couldn't verbalize what they were doing. They couldn't put it together as a concept. They couldn't do this. They couldn't do that. So it's an odd combination that made a person ability to be an artist and a merchant. So I was an artist plus a merchant. I didn't mean to be a merchant. I didn't ever start out thinking I'd be a merchant. But, you know, starting selling earrings, I learned how to how to pull this stuff together. So anyway, then after that, um, my sister Kathleen was doing some work for the IBW, the Illinois uh, International um, Electrical Union people, and in Washington, D.C. And so she was talking to the head of the uh the people she said, you know, I know you can't put paintings on every floor of this building. It's just impossible. And she said, but my sister could really work this. She could do photography for you. That's going to that'll just, you know, you will believe what she can do. So anyway, I'm not you know, I'm really not that person. But I said, OK, <laughs> I flew to New York. I had taken some pictures of I didn't even know who the electrical workers were or who they encompassed, but I had tried to take a picture or two of somebody working with them as an electrician and um, they bought it. I said the same story. I said, let's, let's make your building reflect who the members are. Let's find all the various parts of the, your membership and I will photograph them and make them into art pieces. And once they're photographed and into art pieces, if they come to visit, they can see themselves. If not themselves, somebody like themselves as they walk through the halls. This is a big building in Washington, D.C. This is an enormous union, the the IBEW. And um, so they bought it. They said, absolutely, let's get going. So I had a terrific bunch, bunch of adventures because... Now I was photographing electricians. I went up in the bucket up on top of those high wire things way up in the top. <laughs> I told the fellow, I said, now the concept here is I'm your mother and you're not going to let me die. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and up we go. Oh that was God. a huge, I mean, I'm up there thinking, holy crap. Then I did the, I did, I actually did Trump tower. They were putting Trump tower together and I was out photographing on one of the ledges, you know, going backward. And some electrician grabbed me by the front of the shirt and pulled me. And he said, they won't like it if you die. <laughs> you know, and pulled me back in because I was not not paying attention. In Chicago, I did the, um, I went to the Bears game. I was on the, on the out on the field with the Bears taking pictures because not of the Bears playing, but of the people that hold those big circular things for sound. Those were electricians. I was, the cameramen were IBEW people. So I was taking pictures of the camera people. I, uh, I was, uh, who else was, oh, all the people inside that do the mixing, you know, where there, you sit there and, and they're, they're the, all these feeds are coming in from these cameras and they're deciding what you're going to see on TV. So I, I mean, all of this was very, very exciting. I did the Cubs. 
I went up to Cubs and I was in the, the, the room with the, the talking heads, as they say. And then I was taking a picture of one of the camera and I said, well, what's the best place? For-? He said, well, you've got to go up on top of that green screen, that green thing that tells you what the scores are. The scoreboard. scoreboard. Yes. yes. Go to the top of the scoreboard. You will never get a better set. I said, are you sure? Would your mother go to, I always refer these because I was getting, you know, I'm not as old as now, but it was in the nineties. <laughs> Would your mother be up there? And I, oh, in a minute, she'd be up there in a minute. Go on up. So I go up, and you realize you get to the first thing, and there's these people that they were still hand moving the things in the nineties, the, the numbers and all that stuff. And then, but you're going up ladders, and I thought, holy cow, I'm going hand over hand over hand. And then when I got to the top, it's not just flat; it's all filled with. I don't know, steel buttresses to hold it together. I'm climbing over and he's over there. And I said, your mother wouldn't have come up. No, he said, no way in hell. She'd never come up the stairs, do this. I got some great shots. And um, so then I traveled with that. I was down in Mississippi and I was on the, the, the IBW were working on the big warships and all that kind of stuff. And I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many places I went. I was in Washington, D.C., where the printers were, where they print up the government stuff. And I was just it was just very exciting. I was in the Christmas tree. I went up in the thing where the, the electricians from the city of Chicago were lighting the Christmas tree, running the thing. And I was up in some bucket. And I said, isn't there a, a strap to wrap around me in case? And he said, no, no, we just figure either you live or you die. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> so anyways, but that was a lot of fun. And, and that went on probably about three or four years. And it came really when I needed it because 2008, we had our enormous recession. And the recession caused the absolute collapse of art galleries and art consultants. People were no longer spending freely the, the, the heyday of everything's going to be wonderful and everybody's going to have money and people were pulling back. You know, there was a reset. People weren't getting jobs. Young people weren't getting jobs and um, people were being bumped out of their jobs. Architects were out of work. I mean, you know, it was so it was if this if I hadn't had this photography aspect, because I still had been up until that point doing all of the the. Uh, um, the sculptural work as well as that. But somewhere also in the middle of this, this also is, I, I have to put this part in too, because the photography was a lifesaver. Obviously, they continued. I, I lived off the, the photography. And, uh, but right around 2000, my sister, Kathleen, who seems to be a, a, a integral part of my career, which I, I just for whatever reason, she was at a meeting of uh, people that were talking about the INM Canal. And the INM Canal was at its beginning stages of becoming a recreational area for the for the state of Illinois. It had been approved in the late 1980s by Reagan to, but never funded for a national heritage corridor. And so it was one of the first that was so that could be developed. So the idea was to develop a, a path, a path from um, 
LaSalle to Chicago, basically, which was the I&M Canal, which caused the whole concept of building and Morris and Joliet and actually Chicago. Without that, we wouldn't have had Chicago, or at least not as a big city. So um, they were just at the very beginning stages. And Anna Koval was talking to my sister and she said, boy, it's really hard to find somebody to work in the metals. We've got the designer and all that stuff. We can't find the metals person to fabricate and how are they going to do it? And Kathleen said, well, my sister knows everything that is needed to be known about metal. All things about metal. Now, this is a blatant lie. I knew I knew some things about metal. I, I know more than you know about metal, but I, bet I don't know crap about, you know, I had never even heard of Corten Steel. But anyway, she told her that oh, this is wonderful. OK, so they brought me in and I fabricated the first statue from their graphic artist. They had a graphic artist who was going to do the drawings, but the graphic artist was making pictures about two inches high. And what happens when you take a picture of a little drawing of a person, which is extremely charming, that's two inches high, and now you blow them up to be six feet tall, is all of a sudden it is totally distorted. Little lumps. I mean, the paper that he was carrying looked like a huge sausage crossed his body. You know, I mean, all sorts of things were wrong. And I said, you know, I can't. I mean, I think his drawings are wonderful. They're great. I can't work from this. I have to do my own my own artwork if I'm going to fabricate this stuff. And so uh, I started doing the I&M Canal, the Corten Steel sculptures that you see around the city. And uh, and along, if you go to Morris, you'll see them. And I did the V Marcus. I knew nothing about any of this stuff. I had no idea. And I did have to learn how to change it, uh, to vectorize drawings that I made. And I had at first I cut them out and I sent them to the fabricator life size. I just cut them out. I didn't know how else to do it. I had the photographs. I would call I would get models and I hired a dramatist, uh, uh, Lori Carmine, who was still working with the city at the Bicentennial Park. And she'd get those outfits for everybody. And we I do all the photography and I pick the pictures and, and I would take direction from the INM canal of who I was supposed to be portraying. So I might be portraying Mr. Gaylord or something like that. And so I learned how to vectorize and how to, to change the Rassiter images to vectors so that the cutting thing where it was able to cut the metal as, as opposed to cutting it out of cardboard and then sending it over to the company. That was a very primitive method. But they were also just at the beginning stages of doing all this laser cutting and all this fancy stuff. So I got a, a lot of publicity for that. I did a lot, a lot for the INM Canal. I don't know if I've got 40 or 50 of these statues. I have three, uh, four more are going into Streeter this, this, this spring. So I'm still doing the, the people. Once again, the people that matter to that community. So it's kind of on the same thread of my photography, who matters to that community, who was important to the start of Streeter. So those are going in this spring. Uh, and in any case, then I, you know, I just kept on going with my thing. And then I moved 
my studio moved downtown Chicago on Chicago Street. And I was there maybe four or five years. And then I moved my studio in 2016 back to my home, thinking that would be a, a retirement time. Well, not really. <laughs> you know, I'm still I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. And you probably wonder about the uh, the fact that I was in the architectural digest. Um, I would get publicity sometimes unbeknownst to me. I mean, somebody sent me a uh, a magazine from Germany or somebody sent me this or somebody sent me that, you know, and I I thought, holy crap, where did that come from? But um, Kathleen, my sister, was apparently had a subscription to Architectural Digest and uh, she's reading it. She boy, that that wall sculpture looks like my sister's. And then (laughs) she starts reading and it says noted artist Marsha Liga has and it's a full page, a full page picture of my the work that they bought from me on uh, over um, a rod's bed in his home at that time i his significant other, other was jlo i don't remember if they were married or not but their significant other was jlo so i hear i had i know can you imagine it was an edition of architectural digest that was fo- uh focused on his home he had a major art collection a rod he has a beautiful art collection it's just that i had a whole friggin' page i mean i was like wow but the funny part was um that's not the funny part that you didn't know you're an architectural digest with your. No, I know. The part that was really funny was prior to Kathleen telling me this, I was getting these calls. People were calling me and they would say, uh, I'm from London. I was just wondering, I've got this wall. This is the start of almost all sculpture stories is they've got a wall. I've got this wall. I was just wondering, what do you think about your sculpture? It's, it's got concrete within it. I, and I said, oh, I think it'd be dynamite. It would look great. Steel and concrete would be great. You know, uh, unbeknownst to me, of course, in Architectural Digest, my my thing was on a concrete wall. And then I got a call from... I don't know, it was Singapore, I think. Singapore. Holy shit, what is going on? Then I got a call from Canada. And then I got a call from some uh, Emirates area, someplace around. Anyway, uh, so I had gotten all these calls. And then Kathleen called me. And um, I said, you're thinking, I thought, wow. So anyway, what it was is they distribute international, the Architectural Digest goes out internationally before it hits America. So I was getting these calls from international people and, you know, as what have you. So that was a great boon to my career because 2016 um, is what, how many years ago? <laughs> Seven years ago, I would have been 70. And I was really thinking this was, I was closing in on the end of this parade, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting calls and I, somebody wanted one. I actually did sell the one to the lady in uh, Singapore and she had a, a building with a wall, a concrete wall, just like uh, A-Rod's wall. Anyway, so I had to ship that off and I think Colorado and maybe Canada and some other ones. So it was all of a sudden I had a flurry of, of interest, which was kind of it was a kind of, you know, an exciting time for me to to have that happen. Um, after that, I haven't really solicited business. I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I haven't gone out and tried to get business. I do get business and I do 
uh, still do things, but I'm scaling back and I'm scaling back, you know, I, but I have the big thing in Streeter going out and I have this big order for the international, international crane, um, people. I do these birds, you know, I made a bird that went outside of um, a subdivision on Theodore street. Okay. And I made a bird, a crane. And when I went up one time on vacation, uh, to Baraboo with Wisconsin with my husband, I, I took the crane. I thought maybe they'd like that in their shop or something. Well, they loved it. So I've been working with these people, the international crane people for years. And so I still make cranes for them and uh, various, because I had taken pictures of all the cranes while I was up there. So life goes on. I'm 77. I'm not sure, you know, where the next place will be. My daughter, Stephanie, is uh, uh, very positive about my work. And she thinks that she'd like to represent my work and do things with. I'm not interested in the marketing aspect of it anymore, nor do I have perhaps the I have the stamina to talk about it. I have the stamina to design it. I don't have the stamina to actually physically all make all the stuff or the stamina to go out and try to do trade shows or any of that stuff. So she's very interested in, in pursuing more of that. And Stephanie's a very good artist, a very good artist. Mm-hmm. And my son is also very um, um, supportive of all the things that I've done. And his home is kind of like a, a tribute to his mother. So it's, it's kind of, so that is the career of a Joliet artist, a woman who really planned nothing, absolutely nothing. I think and that's the title of your memoir. I guess so. A woman without a plan. A woman without a plan. And I would love to know, Marsha, you know, you mentioned your children and yes. for our listeners, you know, yes. I, I'm actually dear friends. I'm lucky. I'm just blessed enough to be dear friends with Marsha's daughter, Stephanie. Absolutely. Um, would love to know, because you did have a career as a woman, as an artist in metal. And we're talking about, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, as you're bringing up children as well. With a lot of women decided just to maybe to stay home. It was a different time, a different era. It was for, a, definitely for, a different era. Females. And can you talk just a little bit maybe about what that was like for you as a woman coming up in art during that time and being a mother? I would say that, you know, when you think about America, there weren't many women artists working in metal, especially in jewelry. Absolutely. But not in bigger pieces of metal. Um, So that was exceedingly unusual, exceedingly unusual. I think there was a sacrifice my children had to make because I was doing this. I did these trips. I left them. You know, I'd be gone for a week and. I don't I knew of nobody that left their children unless, you know, maybe somebody might have left their children with their grandparents while the husband and wife went on a trip. But I was going on all these trips by myself. Uh, I, I was I was traveling. I went to Japan for I forgot that whole aspect. I worked with I did three trade shows in Japan and and ended up working with Mr. Watanabe for numbers of years on other projects, uh, buying antiques for him. But in in any case, all of these trips were stressful for my family. They were stressful for my husband, who found it extremely annoying and stressful for my family. You know, I remember Stephanie said that when she was in middle school, they were going to have 
they were going to be talking about the facts of life at school. I don't know what they would call that back in those days, but they needed a signature from uh, the parent uh, concerning the permission for them to have this, to participate in this type of uh, class. And Stephanie was too embarrassed to ask. I wasn't there. Embarrassed embarrassed asked her father about having the talk um, so she said she was one of about five girls that had to sit in the principal's office during the time of <laughs> you can imagine Stephanie she was torn between she couldn't ask her father about menstrual periods or whatever they were going to be talking about it, it was just too much and then uh I remember there was another time when she was in high school and apparently she wanted to go to some some um venue and I don't know, Romeoville or maybe, maybe it was Berlin book, but anyway, it was a place I would never say yes to. Absolutely never. It was rough. It was terrible. I would never have said, oh, that's a great idea. So, but since I was gone, she would, she could ask her father who knew nothing, apparently knew nothing, had never kept up with anything. And off Stephanie goes only to have some kind of a, a weird experience that she probably would share with you, <laughs> maybe not the whole world, but anyway. Um, so I think that they, they had um, the disadvantage of having a mother that was here and there. You know, I mean, I was going probably for at least four trips, maybe five a year. That's a lot. And, yeah, and sure. you're a working woman, you know, this, mm -hmm. you're gone and you're, your family suffers when you're gone. Now, on the other hand, I took my kids with me. Mm. Stephanie worked in the booths with me. I think started at about 14 or something like that. I was taking her to San Francisco. She was, if it wasn't school time, she could come to do the shows with me. And uh, I took Ted to New York. He was at New York with me. I mean, they had advantages that many other kids never had. They never got to see what it meant to be, to work a booth, to, to sell the stuff, to hang the stuff. Teddy was, when he was, you know, in 18, 19, he was delivering my artwork all over the city of Chicago, you know, and bringing stuff here and bringing stuff there. And he got to talk to a lot of arty people that he wouldn't have talked to. So the there were disadvantages, but it, they had doors open that they wouldn't have had opened for them. Uh, and they also saw me doing it. And when Stephanie went to college, um, she has a double major and uh, she did one part was in art and she was and she did a lot of jewelry work, her own artwork and what have you. And she has a marvelous eye. And now for some unknown reason, my son, who is, I think, 52 years old, um, got some paint. His wife bought him some paint for um, paint and canvas for Christmas. I think he's he's produced an enormous amount of paintings. I mean, I'm talking, I don't know, 30 paintings since Christmas. I mean, he's just he's just like a maniac. And actually, they're pretty good. They're really pretty good. And I'm not only pretty good, I'd say they're great. I can't believe he's doing this. You know what I mean? He, he went from never painting to painting with intensity and every painting has gotten better. It's just, it's really amazing to see. And um, his, of my four grandchildren, uh, my son Ted's youngest daughter is uh, Ava, is very interested in art and quite gifted. And so I, I know your daughter is a, an art, art student also. Yes, and she is. Just, 
She just made a character for me. I put it on Facebook. She did a character of grandma. And then she also included uh, the the drawing as it materialized, you know, some kind of a video that shows her drawing the, the thing all the way through. And I don't I don't even know how she did it. But so I just posted that last night. So um, I think there's. Uh, you know, I think when you have children that see their mother um, maybe doing things that are a little different, it gives them a little more freedom to do different things and try different things. I mean, your daughter's out there going to school and being an artist. And maybe if you had been a, a totally stay-at-home mom or even a, a, a regular path person, they might not have had the courage to do those things. So, and my son is a filmmaker who would have thought that, you know, I, oh, I think it's amazing. I, you are incredibly an inspiring person all the way around. Your path is incredibly unique. And I, and I know your children, I've met your children, obviously I'm dear friends with one of them and they're boldly independent. And I, I think that's, so. you know, just a great product of their parents, you know, it's, and of course I was, I never mentioned my husband. I was married for 53 years to the most amazing person that you could be, that you could be married to an icon of the city of Joliet and nationally in the music program, Ted Liga. And, um, Ted and I, thanks for listening. Not a lot in common. Never did have a lot of common. But produced by uh, he had a passion, which was music. I had a passion, music, which was art. We One time uh, I was complaining. Nothing that a strict job wouldn't solve, you know. Cheers. I said, OK, well, that's, I'm not going to complain anymore. That's right. A straight job would have made a whole lot of difference because I would have had, a, you know, a regular income and whatever. So I thought, OK, he's not complaining that I don't have a straight job. But he didn't want to, he didn't want to hear that I complained about the straight job. But uh, I would say Ted struggled with me being gone. Uh, as as the children got older, of course, that passed and it wasn't as difficult for him, but he was supportive. And I think and Stephanie told me he was proud of me and he would say things, you know, like, uh, you know, to others that he was proud of what I was doing. And somewhere when I moved out of my studio, which I might've been in my home studio into a faraway studio, I mean, offsite studio, my, I might've been in my, maybe I was 50. Then he decided he'd take up cooking. So he cooked from then on, from the time I was 50 or he was 50 until he passed or close to when he passed, he was, he was the main person to do all the cooking and, and all of that kind of stuff. Stephanie says she doesn't hardly remember that I ever cooked. I said, what happened between the time I got married at 21 and 50? I was cooking. It was your father that took up cooking at 50 and went to 75. It was, we both did an equal amount. But um, had I not had a husband that had, uh, as we call it, a straight job, um, I could never have done this. So it takes more than it takes your family to be able to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. 100%. Frequently we'll see. Um, and maybe in my era more than your era, but maybe in your era also, but maybe more than in your, not as much for your daughter, but um, it was hard to find women artists. 
because women artists uh, would support their husband. Frequently, they marry artists. The women artists would go get the straight job, support the husband in his artistic uh, endeavors. Uh, but there was a hard press to find the husband that would support the wife in her artistic endeavors. I mean, unless it was a hobby. Right. We're, right. We're That's true. really interesting um, that you say that. It's mm-hmm. really interesting because, you know, when we look back, um, I'm a child of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you look back and and my mother um, passes down her stories all the time of burning her bra and all these things. And, yeah. you know, and um, and especially in the in 1973, when women were um, allowed to get their own credit. Right? Oh, absolutely. You know, before that, they would have to have their husband co-sign to even to get a credit card or to get a loan, you know, at the get bank. birth control pills, unless your husband, when I got married, unless your husband signed off on it. My God. <laughs> I think about like how far we've come and then how we take like a gazillion stuff. Yeah, I mean, it does, it does seem almost amazing, but I never thought it was weird at the time. I don't remember thinking much about it because mm-hmm. I was, yeah, the kids are little. Teddy was born in 70 and Stephanie in 76. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I thought a whole lot about it. It's just the way it was. Your mother sure. might have been more active in that aspect of it. I was more in the 70s. I was going to graduate school and mm-hmm. and pushing teaching and all that kind of stuff. There's only so many hours of the day. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but this is why I find your your story like, you know, just extra fascinating that as a woman artist, you know, you were able to really pave your own way in such an unconventional way. It's it was um, very it was the idea of buying steel. People never just it was the whole thing was uncomfortable for the vendors I talked to. Really? They they, they had a hard time, you know. Well, can I talk to your husband or can is your husband there? You know, and I said, Well, my husband is a musician. And, you know, unless you want to talk up to him about clarinets or bands and forget, yeah. you know, it's not going to, it's not going to help you, you know, but uh, I had a lot of support from the women art consultants and the women gallery owners. Yeah. And I had that support system was in place. And many of these art gallery owners and, and art consultants were, Nowadays, I guess you might call it a vanity jobs. Their husbands put them, they open, they open, the wives wanted to do something, but they didn't have to earn anything necessarily. Mm. They don't want to lose money, but they didn't have to be a real. Uh, so I was somewhat dependent on the fact that they're, once again, their husbands were supporting them in order to. Now, there surely were art consultants that supported themselves and sure. were successful on their own. But it was not uncommon that this would be a part-time endeavor or something they did on on the side, you know, kind of like a part-time interior designer or something of that nature. And yeah, but I reaped the benefit of them being supportive of me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Yes, you did. I can't wait to see what you do next, Marsha. Oh, I, I don't think that you are done. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. I, just I don't know. I want to 
to be done. So that part of me says, oh, please, please. <laughs> Last night, my daughter, Stephanie, was over and she was organizing. Uh, I I made the Steelman statue that's outside the high school. It's, it's in the half, I don't know, three quarter inch, four ten steel. And uh, I made the little ones and I've been selling the little ones off and on for I don't know, 15 years or something like that. And 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 the the JCA ones, I took pictures of the JCA top and I, you know, made those statues. So she was doing, she was organizing all this. And I thought, oh my God, this might never end. <laughs> this might never end. We might be doing, you know, it might be evolving in another way, another, another whatever, you know. Yeah. It's an unusual career. It is not a lucrative way of deciding to work. You know, mm-hmm. there's no set salary. It either works or it doesn't work. You're at, uh, when the economy goes down, you know, it's, it, you're tied to, especially making art, which is a luxury item. Um, it isn't, had I been a high school teacher and retired as a high school teacher, financially, I would be a lot better off mm-hmm. at this point yeah. in my life, a lot better off. But would I have ever gone to Japan three times? Would I have ever gone, traveled all over the country and done all this stuff with the IBW and, and um, you know, the v- variety of things that I've been able to do, I couldn't have done Absolutely. I mean, your life is, um, sounds like it's been fulfilling in so many ways. It's, I can't say that I've ever disliked doing anything I've done in my life. Okay. Which is, you know, there's an awful lot of people that hate their jobs or hate what they do. Mm -hmm. Or I always was happy to be in the studio. I was always happy to be there. It was always a challenge. And I had a wonderful, I've always had arts, um, um, studio assistants, generally speaking, young men who, and, um, uh, and I still have, um, Roger Carlson works with me and, uh, that has always been nice. And then I had a wonderful office manager, um, Barb Siebert. And, uh, at early in my career, I went to one of these, con- those, those things where retired executives will talk to young people that are, or young entrepreneurs. Not that I was that young of an entrepreneur because I would have been, you know, in my thirties when I started that. And uh, I uh, went to see him and he, he said, you're on the brink of failure. You've oh. got to get somebody to manage your office. He says, you've got to pay your bills on time. You've got to order what you need to do. You've got to be a business person. This isn't just for fun. If you want to make this to survive, you've got to have somebody. So I had met Barb Siebert at, a, I don't know, some fundraiser. And we were sitting next to each other. And she was saying that she was looking for some, she was an office person. And she was looking, she'd work for a legal office. And she would, was looking for some part, 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 they were talking about jobs and people looking for jobs. I said, well, I have a perfect job. Do you want a part-time job? She said, yeah, because she had kids and everything. She was a big asset. She worked for me from 19, I want to say maybe 1989, all the way to 2015. And with her corralling the business aspect, I was able to do what I did. Mm -hmm. Without her, I don't think I could have done it. 
because she was, you know, conscientious and she was she all the bills were always paid. Things were always done. All the taxes were written out the right way. Things were chaos. There could have been a lot more chaos without her help. So a lot of the people I had help all the way through. Mm -hmm. I had young people that worked for me. that were good studio assistants. I had uh, Barb working for me uh, who kept the office going even though she was only there two or three days a week. And um, so, and I had a husband that was willing to go along with the plan, even though it didn't make him happy. And uh, as far as me leaving so much, but he was, he'd go along with it all. And, um, and I had no fear. Oh, I love that. You had no fear. No, I didn't, I didn't know fear. So when the state of Illinois, uh, came came to me and said, would you like to go to Japan and represent uh, us at the trade show, their big trade show in Japan? I I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me to say, I know nothing about Japan. I don't know how to get to Japan. I don't know squat about Japan. Off I went. And uh, so fear was, I might have had fear once I was close to taking off the, on the plane, but I didn't have any fear when I said I didn't care. You know, I, I didn't have fear and I didn't have an enormous amount of fear of failure because mm. there was always something else down the line. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today, Marsha. Your story is an important story. And I'm so excited to share this out to our listeners because I know that no matter what someone desires to do to hear your story will certainly inspire them. I well, that'd be wonderful. Wouldn't that be nice if somebody was thinking, well, geez, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? And they say, well, she did it. Why not? Absolutely. Why not try it? I mean, the worst that can happen is you don't make any money, but you do need the, you do need all that community. You know, it would have been really tough to not have to be married to another artist. <laughs> like, I bet. You know, like, I bet. I bet. <laughs> it would have been horrible. But then, yeah, you never know. You never know. You never know. Well, I want to wish you just some great health and a lot of peace, Marsha. And thank, thank you, you so much for being on Served Up. Thank you.